Charles Dickens famously opened, um, opened his novel, A Tale of Two Cities, which was set in the, around the times of the French Revolution uh, with these very familiar lines. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. And then he goes on and he writes, he writes this. He said, in short, the period was so like the present. In short, the period was so like the present. Following last week's referendum, irrespective of how you voted in that, as I came across something that John Wright, John Wright, John and Debbie are the national directors of Vineyard Churches, UK and Ireland, and, and something that John Wright said that I think is important for us to remember is he said it should be remembered that in a group of this size, there will be many people who are prayerful, who are wise, who are conscientious, intelligent, and compassionate people who voted differently to many other equally prayerful, wise, conscientious, intelligent, and compassionate people. But irrespective of how you voted, uh, and as you should know if you've been around here for more than five minutes, you should know by now that I have absolutely no intention of advocating either position from this platform. We do find ourselves living in what can only be described as turbulent times. In the last 10 days, uh, the Prime Minister has announced his resignation, and that's led to, leading to a, a, an exciting Tory party leadership race. Um, in the last 10 days, most of the shadow cabinet has resigned. Uh, the leader of the opposition has been voted down in a vote of no confidence, and that's leading to a Labour Party uh, leadership race. Um, Scotland has announced it, that it's exploring, at least, its option as to whether uh, there should be a second independence refer referendum. I also heard that um, the Scottish National Party are proposing themselves as the, um, as the formal, setting themselves up as the formal opposition party at Westminster because the Labour Party couldn't actually form a government if they needed to uh, at any particular moment. Um, sterling has crashed. The markets are unstable. Multinationals are considering their relocation options in um, Paris and Dublin and various other European cities. Companies uh, are putting, if they haven't already, put a freeze on recruitment. The housing market is uncertain. The job market is uncertain. Djokovic is out of Wimbledon. <laughs> what the heck's going on? <laughs> Come on, Wales. <laughs> Turbulent times indeed. But in the midst of all of this uncertainty, um, the first question, the first question that, as Christians that we should be asking ourselves is, okay, everything around me seems to be shaking, but um, on what do I stand? What is it that I'm standing on? In, in whom do I put my trust? What or where or who is, um, is our foundation, is my foundation? 
Because the reality is, the truth is, uh, that all of these things, political parties, financial institutions, markets, currencies, the whole lot of it, um, all of these things are transient. They are all transient. They will all come, and they will all go. None of these things, political structures, financial institutions, markets, commodities, our jobs, our houses, none of these things are the foundations upon which we, as followers of Jesus, stand. None of them. Our foundations are not set and dependent and reliant upon uh, political parties or financial institutions. Our hopes are not found in the job market or in the housing market. We know just from, just from reading the scriptures, this is why in times like this it's so incredibly important. We've been banging on about this for months. But the times like this, it's so incredibly important that we know this book, that we read, we've read this book, that we've digested what's in this book, that we understand what's in this book because it's all in this book. We know just by reading the scriptures that um, all of those things, they're, shift, they're shifting sands. They are shifting sands. They are not the solid rock of Jesus Christ. They are not our foundation. They are not our cornerstone. We know from reading the book of Revelation that the old order of things will pass away. We know when we read the Psalms that we are not to put our trust in princes or in human beings who cannot save, but that it is the God of Jacob who is our help. It is in the Lord our God, the maker of heaven and earth, in whom we place our trust, for he remains faithful forever. Amen? Amen. And so, no matter what we, uh, no matter how we're feeling right now, no matter what we're feeling right now, and, and, and many, many people are feeling uh, anxious and, and insecure and fearful and afraid, irrespective of how they voted, Okay? People are feeling unsettled. Um, no matter what our take on these turbulent times in which we find ourselves, we can take comfort, and I think it was attributed to Homer, Homer's words, that uh, whilst we know not what the future holds, we know who holds our future. Whilst we know not what the future holds, we know who holds the future. And that's really the first thing that I wanted to say this morning. And, and if you hear nothing else, which is quite possible. Um, if you hear nothing else, hear this, that as followers of Jesus, we stand on something um, far more enduring than the fleeting things of this world. It is the God of Jacob who is our help. It is in the Lord, our God, the maker of heaven and earth, in whom we place our trust, for he remains faithful forever. Um, but amidst all of this turmoil over the last... 10 days or whatever, you know, around the, the political, our political parties, um, around the, the race for the top job, uh, amidst all of the turbulence of the financial markets and currencies and what's going to happen to our pensions and our wages and da 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 da, da. Um, For us as Christians, for us as followers of Jesus, I, I think one of the more troubling, I, I don't even know what to, how to describe I can only think of describing it as a mindset. One of the most troubling mindsets, for want of a better expression, that seems to have risen to the surface since the nation uh, went to the polls last, a week ago last Thursday, is this apparent rise of an unacceptable and untenable um, 
form of what I can only describe as prejudice. And it's a sort of, it's a prejudice against those who voted to leave. Um, and there's also some degree of prejudice against those who voted to remain. So there's this sort of prejudice and this conflict arising. Um, but perhaps most importantly, there's, um, there's been this rise of a racial prejudice that seems to have bubbled up to the surface against those who appear to look like they are no longer welcome in the United Kingdom. This, this form of prejudice that seems to have just bubbled up. Sure, it's always been there, but it suddenly seems like it's found a voice against people who we're not sure are supposed to be here. Uh, social media, seen over the last few days at its very, very worst, is running very, very hot. If uh, you've spent any time there, we're, um, we're, seeing, we're seeing rifts and divisions sort of forming. Between, um, between friends, between friendship groups, uh, within families, between generations, across generations, within and, and between geographic locations. But it's perhaps most insidiously of all, it's between country of origin and race that for me, I think, is one of the most concerning developments since we went to the polls. Now, as you know, whilst I'd never ventured to address party political matters from this platform, as Christians, as the church in this nation, we do need to address these matters. We absolutely need to address these matters so that we, as the church, can lead the way in society, so that we, as the church, can be salt and light in an ever-darkening world, as we, as the church, seek to live our lives the way Christ would have us live. And so having uh, touched a little bit on um, where it is that our foundations lie, um, this morning what I want us to do, and maybe I'll unpack this over the next couple of weeks, is, um, is I want to look at the importance to God of diversity and difference. And, and just to see how that impacts us in who it is that God has called us to be as the local church. Does that make sense? So you've got a Bible. Why don't you turn with me to Revelation chapter 7? We'll just look at a few verses there. Revelation chapter 7. It's right at the very end. Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse uh, 9. It says this, After this, this is John's vision, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I came across a story the other week, and apparently a few years ago, I think it was, um, it was to mark the arrival of Midsummer's Day or something. It certainly couldn't have been this year, but um, it was a few years ago. To mark the arrival of Midsummer's Day, somebody had imported um, a whole number of huge snowballs. 
They'd imported all these snowballs and they'd uh, placed them uh, in all these different locations around uh, central London. And I, I think they were supposed to be, I don't really get these sort of things very well, but I think they were supposed to be some kind of form of urban art, right? And, um, I, and actually, when I think about it, I, I, I think that's true. I think there's something about that that I can go, yeah, I think that makes sense. Because um, I think, being as they were, made of frozen water, there's something in that that reflects um, certainly something, certainly very much, of what London is like. Um, perhaps it reflects something of what society at large should be like. Um, but most definitely, it, it kind of reflects, there's something in there that reflects the high value that God places on diversity and difference. Uh, what am I talking about? Well, you think about it. When God freezes water, what does he make? Ice. Snow. You know? Snow. Snow. God makes snow. And if you look, you look at, you get, get, grab one of these uh, um, snowballs, uh, which would have, midsummer's day, lasted for at least three months in this climate. Um, you take your snowball and you, you, you get a little bit of it and you look under a microscope at you know, what, what, what it's made of. What you would find is that you, you'd see that it was actually made up of all these millions and millions and millions of tiny kind of crystalline flakes. And my point is that every single one, as you know, every single one of those snowflakes would be different. Every single one of those snowflakes is, is unique, uniquely different. And then you kind of contrast that. You contrast what it is that God makes when he freezes water with what we do when we freeze water. Because what we do, what we tend to do, is we tend to make ice cubes. Do you know what I mean? We, 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 we fill our little trays with water and we stick them in the fridge and we wait until they solidify so that we can drink our gin and tonics. We, we like, we tend to like we tend to go towards and gravitate towards sort of identical blocks, if you like, boringly homogenous uniformity, just everything looking exactly the same. God, God, God's not like, God's like, I can't be doing that. I don't want things to be diverse. I want things to be different. I want everything to be unique, uniquely different. You know, and he's structured, you think, look at the universe, you look at the universe in which we find ourselves. He, he's structured the whole universe to express this delight that he takes in diversity and difference. And nowhere is that difference uh, more evident than in, and wonderfully expressed than in the creation of the human race. And in us. Just look at us. Every single one of us sitting here, we, each one of us is, is a unique individual and in far more complex and wonderfully creative and diverse ways than a, than a mere snowflake. Walk through London tonight. Go into central London, walk through London this evening, and, and you'll see it wonderfully and dramatically unfold in front of you. You will pass and you will walk past hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of wonderfully different and diverse people. Not one of them will be the same. They'll all be different. And yet, for some reason, our tendency is that we, 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 we kind of like, for some reason... Um, we like to get together in groups, and, and, and we quite like that our groups are actually all the same. And when I say that, what, what I really mean is that we want our, the groups that we become part of to be the same as us. 
for some reason, um, individualism, um, you know, this nationalism, this tribalism, this sectarianism, racism, all of these things, they all seem to bubble to the surface because for some reason there's a tendency within us to only feel safe when we are surrounded by people who look and smell and feel like we do. When, we're, when effectively we've, we've become part of some undifferentiated social sort of ice cube. So what we tend to, we have a tendency to this. We have a tendency to gravitate and surround ourselves with people who think and who act and who talk the same way as we do. And then the risk of that is, if we do that, then we start to treat with hostility and um, suspicion Anybody who doesn't belong to a monocultural little club. There's something, there seems to be something about the diversity that you find in a snowflake that, that actually sort of threatens our security in some way, for some reason. The reality is we've always been the same. We've, we've always been the same. You remember the story back in um, the Tower of um, Babel, right back at the beginning of Genesis. Genesis chapter 11, you've got the Tower of Babel, the story of the Tower of Babel, and, and in, and in chapter one, uh, verse 1 of chapter 11, it, it begins with the observation that the whole world had one language. The whole world had one language. And you look at that and you kind of go, well, that's a good idea. That would make life a lot easier. You know, how, how problematic is that? That's, that seems harmless enough. That seems innocuous enough. However, you read on in chapter 11 of the story of the Tower of Babel, God saw something um, in that that was actually an, a, a dangerous development. And uh, it was really that there, behind that was this ambition to unite, uh, in effect, the whole of human civilization into one actually monstrous, monocultural, monolingual group. So the story goes on, and what the story says, if you read chapter 11, is that God actually intervenes. He's like, no, 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 no. And he intervenes, and what he does is he deliberately confounds the language, confounds everyone's language, uh, and it prevents that outcome. And he's literally, God's intervening because he's saying, I, I didn't design you, I didn't create you to become some monstrous ice cube-making machine. But you're just going to churn out all of the same things. And he's saying, no, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess this up a little bit. I want to I keep your diversity. I want to keep the richness and the wonder of the creative diversity that I've actually put in you. I want to celebrate your difference. And then that story that you see right back at the beginning of Genesis chapter 11 is something that you see underscored when you, um, you see the beginning of the church. You see at the, at the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. You see this whole, that whole story underlined and reiterated. And we looked at this passage a few weeks ago, so I won't go into too much detail here, but just, just think about this for a second. In, in Acts chapter 2, God could have miraculously given a common language. You know, uh, uh, this, you've, got this, you've got this incredibly, wonderfully cosmopolitan crowd in Jerusalem, and they're all there for the Feast of Pentecost, and there's just all this diversity, all this richness, all this difference of every kind imaginable, all gathered together in Jerusalem. And God could have given them this one single universal language, this one common tongue, so that they could all understand what the apostles were saying, what Peter and the other apostles were saying. 
God doesn't do that. What does God do? God chooses at that point to distribute the gift of different kinds of tongues. Different kinds of tongues, different kinds of languages. So that they all heard what the apostles were saying. They all heard what Peter was saying in their own language, in their own tongue. And the Greek word there for tongue is actually, it's more, it's narrower than that. It's actually dialect. So they all heard the glories and the wonders of God being declared from someone, um, not only who spoke the same language as them, but as if they were like from down their street. They were speaking the same sort of argo that I speak. Huh? What we're seeing here in the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2 is the demonstration that the Holy Spirit intended to produce an unprecedented internationalism within the body of Christ, within the church that was birthed on that day. So, unlike human empires, the church isn't designed to homogenize people into uniform little ice cubes. Instead, the church was being called to integrate people like snowflakes. It's wonderful, wonderfully creative and diverse, interlocking matrix of difference and diversity and wonder and splendor. And this is why, um, no matter uh, what the trend, the demand, whatever the demand is uh, of, of what's happening uh, in society at large, in society in which we find ourselves at large, that is why we, as the church, the body of Christ, we are called to be different. We are called to be radically counter-cultural. That's our job. One of the most exciting ways in which the new Jerusalem in the book of Revelation uh, is so different from the city of Babel that you find in the book of Genesis is that in that final vision that we've just looked at from the book of Revelation that John has, John describes the population of heaven as this single multitude. So they're united, absolutely. But they are gathered from every tribe and nation and kindred group and people from around the world. And they are still recognizably so. It's incredible diversity in the midst of this incredible unity. And so the gospel... The good news of Jesus is calling us together in unity, absolutely. But it is not calling us to this kind of um, bland uniformity. It's just not the way God likes to do things. There's this um, wonderful, uh, immense diversity that God has engendered in us through um, creation. Uh, this, this wonderful creative diversity that characterizes us as human beings. None of it is erased in the age to come. It's not kind of obliterated and wiped out. When you look at John's revelation of, of, of the, the, the coming age, he's saying, actually, no, 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 no. Far from being obliterated, far from being wiped out, it's actually preserved, it's celebrated, it's glorious. It's what makes it so wonderful. Heaven is this vast, multicultural, multilingual celebration. Heaven is like the Notting Hill Carnival gone mad. We're not all going to be the same in heaven. We're all going to be different 
gloriously, wonderfully different. And it's, it's that social diversity. It's, it's, that, it's, it's, it's the wonderful richness of that future age. It's, it's the not yet bit of the kingdom of God. And it, what it's that not yet bit of the kingdom of God breaking into the now that we as Christians, that we as the church are to be modeling, and albeit imperfectly, of course it will be imperfect, but we are to be modeling in our church here and now. So our church is supposed to reflect something of that future age, bringing the future age of the, the not yet into the now. Because the fellowship of the Holy Spirit isn't, is not a battery farm of clones. Far from it. The, the, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit um, manifest in and through the local church is this vast family of precious individuals from every tribe and nation, each one valued for their diversity, for their own uniqueness, and for the wonderful richness that each one brings. And Paul gets it. He gets it when he writes in 1 Corinthians 12. He says the body is, 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 is a unit, but it's made of many parts. That's what he's saying. He's going on to saying, he goes on to say that, you know, all those uh, many parts that make up the human body, they're all different. You know, we know this. And, and it's all those differences that are actually really incredibly important so that the body can function properly and can function in a proper way. And so our limbs and our organs are mutually dependent on one another. They've, they've got different but equally important and vital functions. And what, God, what Paul is saying is that in the way that God builds interdependent diversity into the membership of um, Christ's church, he's saying you're, you're like limbs and organs. And what he says, he says, you know, there's no need for any one limb or one organ to feel more superior just because of its credentials and because of where it came from or because of uh, its story. And equally, Paul says, there's no reason for any member or organ or limb or to feel inferior because of where it comes from or where it's been or what its story. There's, there's, there's no place for that in the church. Because we all need each other. And, and in, in 1 Corinthians 12, he mentions a few. I just want to draw our attention to just a couple of particular polarizations that were existing in the Corinthian church that Paul, I think, believed should be dramatically affected by this. And, and, and he was saying that the, the diversity that exists amongst us, it shouldn't be a source of division between us. Uh, what he's saying is that the diversity that exists between us should actually be a catalyst and a source for unity and bringing us together, bringing us closer together. And the first, the first sort of axis that he kind of talks about was um, this, this discrimination that existed between Jew and Gentile. And the second was this sort of a, a class division between the slaves and free. Uh, Paul actually goes on much further because he, he, he goes on in that chapter to say, you know, not only is there these distinctions that exist between these things and, um, and those things, but, there's, but the, even uh, the Spirit of God brings um, diversity even through uh, ministry, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He starts talking about all the different gifts. You know, so one is given a gift of this, and one's given a gift of that, one's given a gift of something else. So he's even talking about through the charismatic gifts, there's these reflections of diversity. And... Um, they're all examples of how much God is passionate about and committed to diversity. 
just the fundamental difference is, is that those diversities are not supposed to cause division. They're not supposed to cause separation between us, and that's what was happening in the Corinth, church in Corinth, and that's uh, what Paul was trying to address. You know, and if you expand your vision, expand your horizon to the whole of the New Testament, um, God is, is trying to build community out of all of this random diversity in as many different ways as you can possibly think. Wherever we've got this, we try to generate um, some kind of in exclusive in-group. Wherever we've, we try to de define a sort of um, an, an, an in versus out and an us versus them polarization in society, Jesus kind of steps in. He just kind of kicks it all down. He kicks it all down. And, uh, he kicks down the walls that we've constructed. A, here's some examples. Here's some of the examples just through the New Testament where there are these divisions that shouldn't be divisions. Uh, race between Jew and Gentile, class between slave and free, wealth between the rich and poor, age, uh, child and adult, um, sex between male and female, uh, moral respectability, um, charismatic gift, opinion. And all these things, all these barriers, all these societal constructs that we've put together, um, they're all challenged by Jesus, and he tears, the, he tears them all down. He kicks them all down. You know, we, we, we often, in times like this, we say, oh, you know, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus, what would Jesus do at a time like this? Well, you know, look at Jesus. Look at the life of Jesus. Why did Jesus eat with tax collectors and prostitutes when everyone else was shunning them? Well, it was because the pious Jews labeled people like that as sinners. And therefore, they were excluded from the community. They were excluded from uh, the covenant community. And they couldn't come into the kingdom of God. And Jesus went, like, Jesus comes crashing in like a bull in a china shop, smashes down a few socially constructed walls and says, oh, no, 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 actually, uh, I think, being Jesus, uh, that membership in my community is actually about um, simple faith in me, in Jesus. There, said it. I, I don't, I don't, I, Jesus, okay? Uh, I don't think that membership in the covenant community is actually down to these sort of random, uh, ridiculous laws that these pious Pharisees and their, their strange cronies have kind of constructed and set up. There's a wall, I'm just going to crash it down. I'm going to hang out with some tax collectors and prostitutes. Why did Jesus heal the paralytics and the, and the lepers and the demon-possessed? He, he came crashing into these people's lives. Um, partly it's an act of mercy. Partly it's because he's demonstrating that he's the Messiah. Uh, but it's also because these people, because of their physical, emotional, mental, whatever conditions, were excluded from the covenant society. They were excluded. They were out. Outcasts. It's something about, I, don't know what's, I don't know what's going on with you, but you can't come into my club. You're different. Keep away. You know, there's all these rules about what was clean and what was unclean, and there's all this superstition, there's all this fear. They, they were outcasts. And Jesus comes crashing in and goes, no, 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 I know, I'm going to heal them. And he, and he heals them and he demonstrates the kingdom, and he demonstrates the coming of the kingdom, but he also um, sort of socially rehabilitates them, and so they actually become part. He's saying, these people are very much part of the covenant kingdom. But do you keep them out? Who are you to say who should and shouldn't be part of the, my community? Why did Jesus welcome children and bless them? Children in the society, they were undervalued. They were just, they were just 
things. Jesus says, no, 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 hold on a second. That's, that's not my father's view. My father's view is that the kingdom belongs to such as these. And uh, it belongs to those who are prepared to protect, identify with uh, such as these, uh, um, and, and not just dismiss them for being insignificant. Um, why did Jesus go out of his way to affirm the women who followed him? Um, women at the time were regarded as educationally and spiritually inferior by, you know, as a male chauvinist-dominated society. The guys ran the society, and the women were just like, you know, just stay over there. And Jesus like, no, that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. So Jesus comes crashing through, and he turns up the apple car. And he's basically saying to his disciples, I want all of this discrimination to stop. I want it all to come to an end. And so Mary, Mary in that situation, she chooses in defiance of the convention of the time. She chooses not to go out into the kitchen and do the washing up. She says, I want to sit at Jesus' feet, and I want to learn from the master. And Martha, you know, she's, she's a little bit more traditional. She's like, come out and do the cooking. Come and do the cooking and the cleaning, because that's what we do. And, and Mary's like, no, I'm going to stay here. I want to learn. And Jesus is like, go, Mary, you learn. Stay where you are. Sit at my feet, along with all the other guys, all the other men, and learn. Get an education. Understand. Learn. Learn, learn, learn. Go ahead. Knock yourself out. Awesome. You're not excluded from these things. Uh, Paul, Paul reaffirms it, actually, when he starts talking about, um, he talks about male circumcision. Because what Paul does is he says, you know what, the, the, the sign, the outward sign of um, membership into the covenant community, which used to be male circumcision, it's not that anymore. It's baptism. And so literally what happens is you've changed the very initiatory rights, if you like. The very way into the community has been changed. And it's very much, up until then, a male-only option. And suddenly it's like, well, I don't want to be baptized. Don't need a foreskin. Right. We're all in. Galatians 3.28, there's no more male and female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. What am I trying to say? Oh, golly. Um, what I'm saying is that there is no place in the church for these kinds of discriminations. None whatsoever. Uh, there is no place in the kingdom of God for racial prejudice. There is no place in the kingdom of God for socioeconomic snobbery. There is no place in the kingdom of God for sexism. There is no place in the kingdom of God for generational conflict. All of these diversities and many, many more, they are all reflections of the creative wonder of the Lord God of heaven and earth, um, upon whose foundation we stand. Um, our job in the church is to welcome this diversity. Our mandate as the church in Ephesians 3, chapter, 10, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, says um, uh, your, our mandate is, is to make known the manifold wisdom of God. It is through the church. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. This is the manifold wisdom of God. This is part of the manifold wisdom of God that we as the body of Christ should be reflecting. To the crazy world in which we find ourselves. Our job um, is, is, is uh, as the church is to be as radically diverse as the Spirit of God will allow. Um, our job as the church is to celebrate diversity and it's to allow that diversity um, rather than bringing division as it might in society at large, 
uh, to allow that diversity to bring unity across this and the whole body of Christ. Um, we, live in, we live in turbulent times. These are difficult, difficult times. Uh, we uh, live in times where the fear of difference just might cause some of us to want to seek out uniformity rather than unity. And um, we have to press again. We have to, we have to lean out of that. As, as the church, as followers of Jesus, um, there is no place for any of these divisions. There's no place for racial prejudice. There's no place for socioeconomic division. There's, there's no place for division around um, gender. Our mandate as the church is, is to, as best we possibly can, reflect and imitate God's purpose and his plan for the coming of the kingdom in all its wonderful creativity and diversity and splendor. Um, and so if you're here this morning you know, and you're from any part of the world, any part of the world whatsoever, you are most welcome in this church. We love the fact, we love the fact that the Lord has sent you here for however long it is, maybe five minutes, maybe five years, maybe 50 years. We love the fact that the Lord has sent you here. We love the fact that we get to do church and to do life alongside you and to do it from, with, alongside people of every tribe and nation. We love the fact that you add richness and diversity to this fellowship. We would be the poorer without you. And we pray that the diversity that you represent would increase. And if you're here this morning, no matter what your socioeconomic background, you may be as rich as Crescents, you may be as poor as a church mouse. I, I really don't care. You are welcome in this church. You are absolutely welcome in this church. We love the fact that the Lord has sent you here. We love the fact that we get to do church and we get to do life alongside you. And we love the richness. No matter what your bank account says, we love the richness that you bring into the mix. And then we pray that that diversity would increase. Uh, you may be as old as Methuselah. You may be as young and as fresh as a daisy. Uh, you may be here and you've been following Jesus for your whole life. You may be here this morning and you don't even know who Jesus is. Do you get my point? Um, it doesn't matter where, you, um, where you've come from. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter... Um, what your sexual orientation, I don't, do you know what? I don't care. Let's work those things out together. We love the diversity and the difference and the breadth that that brings. Let's talk about those things together. Let's work things out together. Let's be united together. Let's seek the kingdom together. Let's seek the king together. Let's stand together, arm in arm, and press into the fullness of the kingdom rather than opposing each other standing at odds with each other. We love the richness. We love the diversity. Would that we had more of it. And our, our heart and our prayer is that this small expression of the body of Christ, this insignificant flavor, this tiny little flavor in the wonderful stew that is the body of Christ, the Southwest Sun of Vineyard, our prayer and our heart is that we would no longer conform to the pattern of this world, but we as a church would be renewed. Um, we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus. Let's be different. Let's be different. Let's be sort and light. Um, let's be um, um, the light of the world. Let the, the light of the world, let the light of Jesus shine through the windows of this church. Let, let's have no wars. Let us be a city on a hill. Let us burn bright as a church and burn bright to a world that is getting darker by the second. 
and desperately, desperately, desperately in need of places of hope and security and safety where people can come and find the truth. And they're not going to come and find it if we can't even work it out amongst ourselves. To stand on the firm foundations of the truth, we need to reflect the glorious and wondrous richness of the diversity of the kingdom of God. Why don't you stand?